World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. More than a decade ago, a national radio station was launched for people in prison in England and Wales. We hear from those who made it a success and who have helped the idea to go international. And marijuana is both illegal and socially unacceptable in Japan. But a loophole permits the use and sale of CBD, a non-psychoactive cannabis derivative. And it's proving popular with Japan's sizable elderly population. First up, though. At the start of the war in Ukraine, Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz came under fire for not doing much to help. By last week, when he joined other European leaders in Ukraine's capital, Kiev, his intentions were clear. And Germany has broken with a long state tradition. We support the Ukraine also with the delivery of weapons, and we will do so long as Ukraine needs our support. Germany was breaking with tradition in sending weapons to Ukraine, he said, and would continue to support the country as long as needed. The first shipment of German heavy weaponry has arrived in Ukraine this week, giant cannons on tank-like tracks called Panzerhaubitze, cannons with a range in the tens of kilometers. Western leaders continue to make promises, to write checks, to promise solidarity. But as ever, the focus for Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, the biggest, the most consistent plea, is for more weaponry. The more powerful weapons we get, he said, the faster we can liberate our people, our land. Germany's shipment this week is of course welcome, and more weapons and training are on the way but it hasn't come soon enough to stop Russia's slow advance in eastern Ukraine. When Russia began its offensive in the eastern Donbass region of Ukraine back in mid-April, there was a hopeful sense, perhaps, that Ukraine might even win. They pushed the Russians back around Kharkiv, almost to the international border. There was news of heavy Russian casualties. There was a real sense of optimism. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. I think there's a much more subdued feeling in recent weeks. Russia is making incremental tactical successes in Donbass. And if those continue, Russia could at some stage be able to claim that they control a large part, if not the entirety of Donbass, which was, of course, their ostensible stated aim at the beginning of this campaign. So that is to say that Ukraine isn't making notable gains at this point? Ukraine is having some small successes. For example, in the last couple of weeks, we have seen 
a Ukrainian counteroffensive in southern Kherson province. They've certainly moved closer to Kherson city, which is occupied by Russia. And what we saw last week was that they also sunk a Russian vessel that was reinforcing Snake Island, which is a small Russian-controlled fortress in the Black Sea. So those are morale boosters, but I think they're pretty small consolations next to the gains that Russia is making in Donbass. And the really important fighting, as we've spoken about before, Jason, is around the town of Severodonetsk. This is a fairly large town that lies in the east of a Ukrainian salient that juts into Russian territory, and it's under attack from three sides. The Russians now control about two-thirds of the town. Resistance from Ukraine is confined to an industrial zone in the west. The town is probably cut off from supplies. They can probably only get there by river now. And the Russians are also pressing that salient from the west of Severodonetsk, around the towns of Slovyansk from the north, and also from Popashna in the south. So in other words, this Ukrainian pocket, as we call it in sort of military language, is under really serious pressure now. And so what do those kind of piecemeal gains mean strategically for Russia? Severodonetsk and the Russian gains around there are important for a couple of reasons, Jason. One of them is that, first of all, if they take the town, they can claim to have controlled all of Luhansk province. And Luhansk is one half of Donbass. It also opens up another path to parts of Donetsk province, which is the other half of Donbass. And it gives them another avenue of approach to these industrial cities of Slovyansk and Kramatorsk. It allows the Russians to then perhaps move on to attack those. And if they take those, which which is by no means guaranteed, it would be a real slog, but if they take them, the Russians could then claim they control most of the towns and cities of Donbass. They would control most of the population of Donbass. And it could basically be spun, at least in Russia, as a kind of victory, a kind of meeting of original aims. So that's why these tactical movements we're looking at around these towns that you've never heard of are potentially so important to the wider fight. And that's a real change in in assessment since that campaign in the East began. How is it that Russia is making these gains? Well, raw firepower, I'd say. You know, they're sort of reverting to Soviet military methods of bombing the crap out of defensive positions with heavy artillery. They've got a big advantage in artilleries. The Ukrainians say in some fronts it's 10 to 1 in terms of the number of guns. That may be over-egging it, but it's certainly an advantage. So they're bombarding these positions with artillery, and then they are sending in troops once the defences are softened up. It's a very crude method. It's a very Soviet method. There's certainly no kind of fancy manoeuvre warfare blitzkrieg type military advances. It's a very basic technique. And the Ukrainians are worried because they say they're running out of artillery ammunition. They're firing about five to 6,000 shells a day, which is supposedly about a tenth of Russia's equivalent barrage. The Ukrainians say they're out of longer range rockets, they're smetch rocket launchers, they're out of Tochka ballistic missiles. And the Western countries that are helping them are actually also out of the Soviet caliber artillery ammunition that you need in those kinds of guns. So there's a supply problem, there's a weapons problem, there's a firepower problem, and the Ukrainians seem to be taking very heavy casualties on top of this as well. So basically, the Russians are advancing by sheer force of arms. But isn't the West supplying Ukraine with with plenty of weaponry? 
It is. And that will eventually make itself felt. Ukraine has received probably a dozen or so battalions of artillery from the US and others, half a million rounds of ammunition, over 200 tanks. They've received thousands upon thousands of anti-tank weapons. And there's some more fancy stuff in the pipeline. We've just had the arrival of the German self-propelled howitzers, which are extremely good systems. We've had French Caesar self-propelled artillery, which is probably one of the best such systems anywhere in Europe. And these HIMARS rocket launchers, along with MLRS rocket launchers, which are a much longer range than traditional artillery. These are arriving shortly from the United States, from the UK, from Germany. So all of this stuff is pouring in. And the Ukrainians are panicking and saying, we haven't got enough, you know, we're completely outgunned. But what Western officials are saying to us, Jason, in private is that actually the Ukrainians are getting more than they've asked in some cases. And that, look, any army that's on the back foot never thinks it has enough. But in reality, the arms flow is quite substantial. So that suggests if Ukraine is getting all the weapons that that essentially can can be got in and are still losing ground, that that essentially the, the, the battle for the East is almost already decided, no? I wouldn't say that. I think there's a concern that Ukraine is now getting these advanced weapons. But the worry is that Ukraine may not use these in the way that they were designed to be used. They may be sucked into Russia's trap of attritional slugfest using massive amounts of ammunition too quickly. Western countries want Ukraine to use these in more judicious fashion, targeting the most important Russian targets behind enemy lines, like command hubs, supply depots, those kinds of things. So in other words, this isn't just about who has the most weapons or whether we can shovel enough arms to Ukraine. It's also about how Ukraine uses these, its tactics, its strategy. And I think Western countries feel they actually don't have all that much of a good sense of Ukraine's strategy and intentions. Well, what about Russia's, which we've called into question so many times already? I think the big question for Russia is whether Vladimir Putin is willing to mobilize more manpower. Once this offensive eases off and both sides then rearm, reconstitute their forces and prepare for the next round after the summer, at that stage, Vladimir Putin has to make a call. Does he continue this fight with a significantly depleted army that has taken massive casualties and severe losses over now over three months? Or does he call in conscripts? Does he call up reservists? That would signify the end of the pretense that this is a surgical special military operation. It would confirm that this is a full-scale war effort. But I think for Vladimir Putin, this is now a strategic, perhaps nearly existential question for him, for the fate of his regime. We saw him compare himself last week in a speech in St. Petersburg to Peter the Great and his conquest of new Russian lands. I think that's how he sees this project. He's not going to stop at Donbass. And this is the longer term project. You know, short wars are decided by the armies you have. Longer wars are decided by the armies you build, the countries, the economies, the societies that support them. And that's the kind of war we're now heading into. Shashank, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. 
And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. I went to jail at the age of 21 for fighting. Prison was the place that really could have just killed me. While I was in jail, I picked up the pen. Brenda Burungi is from South London. There was no plan to write poetry. It was more of a way of dealing with the issues that go on in prison and the pain and the loneliness and the emotions that you go through. And either you're going to end up fighting with somebody for probably the smallest thing, like a pair of earrings, or you're going to just be in the block every other day. So I used my pen to kind of heal myself. It was a way of dealing with my emotions, not getting into trouble, not arguing with people, not being aggressive to officers. You know, I just wrote everything out. I await sentencing. Scared and confused, but there's no praying. If God loved me, then I wouldn't be in this mess. That's all I'm saying. After leaving prison, Brenda wanted to share what she learned about coping with life inside. So she contacted National Prison Radio, the world's first national radio station for people in prison. I have a show called Free Flow. It's one of my main shows. I remember saying to the producers, like, maybe we should get them to write. Like, do you think they can call in and send me what they've written? I told my listeners, if you have any bars, call me up. I'll give you some feedback. And honest to God, that's the show now. Unlock your bars with Free Flow. What's good, Free Flow family? It's your girl, Lady Unchained here, and you're tuned into Free Flow, the instrumental show where we play the beat twice so you can get your bars right. Coming up on today's show, we've got some Drake. National Prison Radio broadcasts almost all the prisons in England and Wales. People can listen to it through one of the channels on the televisions in their cells. It's presented by those in prison or those with experience of prison. And it has an eclectic range of shows. What are we on? Are we on? I'm not ready. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. Oh, right. Um, hi, everyone. It's The Rock Show. I'm James. Uh, uh, wasn't quite ready for you, so I'm just going to go through the quick checks. Right, microphone check. One, two. Microphone check. Have we got music? Music check. Right, got, uh, got LucasAid. James Phillips presents The Rock Show on National Prison Radio. I first ended up listening to Prison Radio when I was on remand in Exeter. At that point, I realised I still had years left to do in prison, etc. One of the things I decided to do after listening to National Prison Radio was that I wanted to be on National Prison Radio, but I was in Exeter, and National Prison Radio was based in Brixton, and they had a satellite studio in Codingley. After months of wrangling, I managed to get myself transferred to Codingley, and uh, the very first day I was there, I, uh, I went for a walk over to the education department where they were based and went and introduced myself. And a couple of weeks later, I was working for National Prison Radio. We have a team of professional radio producers that work side by side and hand in hand with people that live in prisons and they make programmes together. They produce the content that broadcasts across the schedule 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Phil McGuire is from the Prison Radio Association, the charity that runs National Prison Radio. When we first started, we thought, well, this is a real opportunity to bring people that live in prison information and news about the rest of the world and about the world outside. But our audience have told us very clearly that what they want from National Prison Radio 
is information and news and talking points that are relevant to prison. So that's what we focus on. Around 80,000 people are imprisoned in England and Wales, and National Prison Radio, which launched in 2009, is listened to by about three quarters of them. How I survived that first weekend, I ain't got a clue. When you get out of prison, money might be tight. It can be quite scary because everything starts to look like a mountain. mountain. As well as helping the people who listen, it also helps those like James who work on it. You paid it for three weeks, it's now 75 quid. And if you're a parent and you've got kids, it's a slippery slope. Doing the radio shows and working with National Prison Radio, it was a stabiliser for me because obviously I was having a lot to come to terms with. When you're in prison, obviously, you're surrounded by prisoners who have an enormous amount of problems. Prisons are absolutely full to the brim with people with mental health issues, issues with addiction, issues with family, issues with being abused as a child, all these types of things. So you're surrounded with people with enormous problems, and it's quite difficult to, to keep yourself on an even keel. But going to the studio every day, it was just a complete change of environment. You know, you were with people that were focused on producing positive output. James has now been released but he continues to present on the station. Gold winner for best new presenter is James Foote. Both he and Brenda have won at the Arias, the British radio industry's most high-profile awards. To be honest, like even saying I'm an award-winning broadcaster is absolutely crazy. And what it does for my listeners is shows them that there is life after prison. And it shows them that through National Prison Radio and through kind of like just continuing to believe in yourself, you will be able to do all the things that you dreamt of. It was just a dream only after jail. It was never a dream I had in jail because I couldn't have ever envisioned the life that I live today while I was sitting in my cell. People often ask me whether National Prison Radio can demonstrate a direct relationship with reducing reoffending, with reducing recidivism. And I think that any single intervention that claims that they reduce reoffending should be treated with some scepticism. Got some really robust data about the impact that we have, but I wouldn't claim that as a direct result of either working on or listening to National Prison Radio, the reducing reoffending rate drops. But we are part of a bigger ecology and have a bigger picture where we support a range of organisations. What's important to all of us is helping people to stay out of prison once they get out. The idea and ethos of National Prison Radio is spreading. Around 20 countries now boast such a service. Stations like Tinka Tinka Prison Radio in India. Namaskar. Yeh tinka tinka jail radio. Jail and podcasts like Ear Hustle in America. I'm Erlan Woods. And I'm Nigel Poor. This is Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Give people inside a voice. NPR going global, I think, is a natural thing to happen, really. I think it's an absolutely superb thing. So many people do actually rely on National Prison Radio for some information because you can't always get it. You just don't get told things sometimes. When you go to prison, you're supposed to get an induction. Sometimes that doesn't even happen. So you're going in and you don't even know where to get food or where to go for, for healthcare or where to get your laundry. All these things, it's just simple things. I remember when I first went to the conference and there was all these different people from different countries that you know, National Prison Radio was like networking with and seeing how they can set up their own radio shows over there. Already I was fascinated by just knowing there's like people in Israel that have come to this conference and they're talking to me like it. For me, this is like, it's, it's even like, it's bigger than what I even imagined. 
Yoshimura Hiroko is an 81-year-old woman who lives in Hadano, near Tokyo. When she started suffering pain and paralysis caused by multiple sclerosis three years ago, her 51-year-old son, Kazuyoshi, stumbled upon cannabidiol, or CBD, a non-psychoactive cannabis compound. A friend of mine told me CBD was effective, so we decided to give it a try. And then the symptoms improved. For most of her life, Ms. Hiroko had nothing to do with cannabis. But Kazuyushi started dropping a dose of CBD oil under her tongue each day. A month later, her pain had gone away. Now that I take care of my mother, my biggest wish is for her to live longer and healthier. With that in mind, I look for things that are good for her. As a result, I settled on CBD. Now we can never let go of it. The Yoshimura family aren't the only ones turning to CBD products. Some research suggests that cannabis is effective against a number of conditions like pain, anxiety and inflammation. So the potential health benefits are driving demand. And because Japan has a rapidly aging demographic, there's a lot of potential consumers here. Mueka Ida writes for The Economist in Tokyo. Especially older people tend to suffer from multiple conditions like chronic pain and other diseases. So they could use CBD to treat those conditions or at least alleviate some of the symptoms. So we're seeing families and carers of the elderly looking for alternatives to help. And in Japan, CBD oil is one treatment they're turning to. What are the laws regarding cannabis in Japan? So marijuana is illegal in Japan, but because of a legal loophole, CBD products are technically not. And that has allowed CBD products to circulate widely in the market. And there's been a whole CBD boom in recent years. So you can see that just by walking around the streets in Tokyo. So there's a popular discount chain called Don Quixote, and you see all these CBD products like gummies and oil and vape pens lined up on their shelves. So that gives you a sense of how much the product has really thrust into the mainstream. Since last year, the government has started talking about legalizing hemp-derived medical products. So Until now, CBD was sort of in the grey zone. But now that the government is planning to legalise and endorse it, that momentum in the industry is likely to grow. In Japan, the market scale was estimated to be around $59 million in 2019. But analysts believe that could skyrocket to about $800 million by 2024. And what's the culture around the use of cannabis products in Japan? Is there any sort of stigma for elderly people using it? Japan has a surprisingly long history of hemp use going back to as early as 14,000 BC. And the plant was used to make clothing and to construct buildings. And it was also venerated as a symbol of purity. So people used it in religious rituals as well. So it was very much present in all corners of Japanese life. And even today, sumo wrestlers wear white rope around their waist, which is made of hemp, as a way to show respect to Shinto gods. 
But after the Second World War, when American occupying forces arrived, they introduced anti-cannabis laws, which banned possession and unlicensed cultivation of the plant. And ever since, Japanese people lost a lot of their connection to cannabis, and eventually they started seeing it as taboo. So most people in Japan today actually don't know about that historical background, and they just see cannabis as a dangerous narcotic. There have been signs of change in recent years. So a lot of young people have travelled to other countries where drug laws are a lot more liberal. So they tend to be lenient towards cannabis. And it was really that younger generation that were the fastest to embrace CBD. And older generations do tend to be a bit more suspicious towards cannabis. But it seems like a lot of them have managed to overcome their suspicion with a push from their children. So I heard a lot of cases where younger people recommend CBD to their parents or grandparents who are suffering from some kind of health problem. And first their parents or grandparents might be like, oh, isn't that illegal? But when the younger family member explains to them that it's legal and safe, they manage to convince them to use it. And you can see how businesses have lead into that as well. So some of them now advertise CBD products around Keiro no Hi, which is a Japanese holiday that honors and celebrates the elderly. So there's a liberalization of attitudes toward cannabis from younger Japanese, and the government seems okay with CBD. Is there any talk of actually legalizing marijuana itself? Medical marijuana is already permitted in other Asian countries. South Korea legalized it back in 2018. And earlier this month, Thailand made it legal to grow and possess marijuana. But when it comes to the Japanese government, although they decided to endorse medical hemp broadly, um, including CBD, it still has safety concerns over THC, the ingredient that gives you the high. And they still think THC is harmful for people's health. So the health ministry intends to set strict limitations on THC content, even for medical use. And that's really disappointing for medical users because some research suggests that CBD and THC mixed together is more effective. And for recreational use... Police have been ramping up arrests of marijuana users and now the government's even thinking of introducing a new law that could even increase the number of arrests. So basically the global trend is heading towards liberalisation. But here there doesn't seem to be any sign that marijuana could be legalised. Do you think that might change over time? A lot of people I spoke to say they hope Japan will become wiser to cannabis with age, so to speak. So when I was talking to Mr. Yoshimura, whose mother uses CBD, he said even the people who insist cannabis is bad today will eventually grow old themselves. And then they would experience pain and illnesses and all the other foibles that come along with aging. So he said, even those people will one day come to understand why we should embrace it. All right, Moika, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.